All you fans of the royal politics of the kingdom of Judah in the 6th century BC, well, you've come to the right place. This is The Backdrop. Yes, this is The Backdrop. I'm Curtis, and we are diving deep this week into the two competing factions in the court of King Zedekiah of Judah. We're looking at chapters 37 to 39 of Jeremiah, which are taken up by the story of Jeremiah being imprisoned for treason during the siege of Jerusalem. But if you read between the lines a bit, a much richer story about what is going on in the court of Zedekiah comes into focus, and I thought we might trace our way through that together this week. The central figure of this drama is King Zedekiah, who was put on the throne by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 597 BC to replace his brother, the briefly serving King Jehoiakim, who is also called Jeconiah or just Konia sometimes. Jehoiakim tried to rebel against Babylon's political influence, and so King Nebuchadnezzar deposed him and replaced him. Presumably, Nebuchadnezzar had reason to believe that Zedekiah would be more loyal. If that's the case, then Nebuchadnezzar was mistaken. What Zedekiah walked into was a long-running battle in his royal court between the officials and elders who advocated for submitting to Babylon, the position that we have seen Jeremiah taking throughout this book, and the officials and elders who advocated for a more nationalistic stance of resistance to Babylonian interference. This usually went along with alliances with other surrounding nations and with Egypt, Egypt was seen as like the other great power that might protect them from Babylon, in the same way that during the Cold War, many nations felt the need to choose between aligning themselves with the United States or with the Soviet Union. For Zedekiah, he was put in power to tilt the balance towards the pro-Babylon forces in Judah. But the nationalists win out in the end. Well, Babylon wins out in the end because the alliances that the nationalists forge turn out to be nothing but, as Jeremiah would say, a puff of wind, and they are all either executed or exiled. And we see in these chapters Zedekiah vacillating back and forth, fearing the nationalists, but also wanting to hear from Jeremiah, who continues to advocate for surrender to Babylon. And in fact, there's good evidence here that Zedekiah doesn't have much say in things anyway. It seems that he has ended up more or less a puppet king, and that the nationalists are really the ones calling the shots. And we'll see more evidence of that in a minute. But for now, chapter 37 begins our story with Zedekiah calling Jeremiah in to see him, asking for a word from God. And Zedekiah says in verse 3, Will you plead on our behalf with Yahweh our God? This is interesting because almost universally elsewhere in the Bible, when a prophet is asked to pray on someone's behalf, they say something like, Will you plead on our behalf with Yahweh your God? Zedekiah says, our God, apparently to communicate his solidarity with Jeremiah, although he never does back up his words with the action of actually putting his trust in Yahweh. Later in chapter 37, as we saw this weekend, Jeremiah is apprehended on his way out of one of the northern gates of the city that led towards the land of Benjamin. It's curious that just leaving the city is seen as treasonous after the siege is broken and the Babylonian armies have pulled back. One scholar I read this week speculated that it is possible that the lands of Benjamin, the area north of Jerusalem, where the Babylonian armies have been camping during the siege, may have already defected to the Babylonian side. The tribes of Benjamin and Judah have a long simmering feud that dates back to the fact that the first king of, of Israel, Saul, 
is from the tribe of Benjamin. But then, instead of his sons, other Benjamites, becoming king after him, David, from the tribe of Judah, takes power. So it's possible that Benjamin has taken the political opportunity presented by this Babylonian attack to see if they could curry favor and change their political fortunes. In that case, Jeremiah going to his home in the territory of Benjamin would in itself be an act of defecting to the other side, an act of treason. Now, this is speculation, but it is plausible. It's also possible that the officials who have wanted to kill Jeremiah for at least 10 years, since the first Babylonian attacks in 597 that resulted in Zedekiah being put on the throne, it's possible those officials have been waiting for any opportunity to plausibly accuse him of treason. It's unspoken, but these officials are clearly from the nationalist faction, who would see Jeremiah as one of the most prominent voices from the pro-Babylon side. In fact, what is notably missing in this account, as compared to the previous instances where Jeremiah has had a run-in with the government or the priests, what's missing is that Jeremiah gets no support. All that's left in the court are nationalists. There's basically two possible explanations for this. Either the pro-Babylon side has been eradicated, whether assassinated, whether they've lost their influence somehow, or been imprisoned for treason like Jeremiah, or, and this is the option I mentioned this weekend, the one that I find the most likely, the pro-Babylonian side has left the city already. They listened to Jeremiah's warnings and they fled when the siege began, and so Jeremiah is the last one left. This would make sense of Zedekiah's fear in the next chapter that the Chaldeans, which again, Chaldeans here just functions as another name for Babylonians, basically. Zedekiah fears that they will hand him over to the Judahites who have already fled. In other words, the pro-Babylon faction. Whatever the reason, Jeremiah has no one defending him and these officials can do with him what they like. And we see this play out in the next chapter, chapter 38, where they accuse Jeremiah of treason and the king allows them to do what they like with him. And in an echo of the story of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis, they don't want his blood directly on their hands, so they throw him in a pit instead, and then leave him to die slowly, as if that's better. And it's in this chapter that the wishy-washy king really comes into focus. First, the officials ask to be able to kill Jeremiah, and Zedekiah says basically, well, I can't stop you, so go ahead and do what you want. And then, as we saw this weekend, Ebed-Melech, the Sudanese, comes to say, hey, this isn't right. Let me save Jeremiah. And the king again says, sure, go ahead and do that complete opposite thing of what I let the other guys do. His responses to these two requests are really telling. First, again, he tells the officials to do what they want because the king can't win against you in this matter. And that's interesting. The king can't win? Zedekiah seems to be just as afraid of the nationalists in Jerusalem as he is of the pro-Babylon faction that is now outside of Jerusalem. In other words, the nationalist officials are really running the show at this point. The king is nothing but a political pawn in their game trying to survive. And as we'll see in future chapters, perhaps it's with good reason that Zedekiah is afraid of the nationalists. In chapter 40, Gedaliah, one of the pro-Babylon officials who had helped save Jeremiah in the past, he is set up by Babylon as the governor of Judah. He lasts as governor three months before he is assassinated, presumably by a group of nationalists. Zedekiah fears that that is the fate that will fall on him if he goes against the nationalists now. But then Ebed-Melech comes to him, and Zedekiah shows that he really wants to save Jeremiah, 
as long as he has plausible deniability, I guess. He tells Ebed-Melech to take 30 men with him and pull Jeremiah out. Now, unless Jeremiah was in some really thick mud, 30 men is a bit much. Or maybe Zedekiah is afraid that a smaller group would be opposed and overpowered by the forces of the nationalist officials. Zedekiah is worried about a civil war starting in his own court over Jeremiah, so he tells Ebed-Melech to go with overwhelming force. And then Zedekiah immediately calls Jeremiah to ask him for advice. You have to imagine Jeremiah is thinking, dude, first of all, the mud from the cistern your people threw me into isn't even dried on my feet yet, and you're asking for me to talk to God for you? And second, I've already told you a thousand times what God has to say to you. But he gives the same message again. It's striking that Zedekiah has enough faith in Jeremiah that he keeps wanting to hear from him, but not enough to actually do what Jeremiah advises. This reminds me of the man who comes to see Jesus in Matthew 19, asking what he must do for eternal life and saying, hey, I already keep all the commandments, so don't say that. And Jesus says, okay, then go sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And Matthew tells us that the man went away dejected because he had many possessions. Zedekiah just can't get over his fear. And the word that is used for fear in verse 19 is actually a relatively rare word in the Bible, but it also shows up in chapter 17 in verses 5 to 8. As I said this weekend, that's where Jeremiah says that the person who trusts in Yahweh will not fear when the heat and the drought come. There's a pretty clear link here between the king who is afraid of both factions in his court because he doesn't trust Yahweh, and so vacillates back and forth, trying to save his own life, but ultimately losing it. Jeremiah, in verse 22, is part of his warning of what will come for Zedekiah if he does not finally choose to trust Yahweh's words and surrender to Babylon, tells him that his feet will be stuck in the mire, in another fitting play on words by Jeremiah in this book, since he might still have mud on his own feet from the mire he had been standing in just a little while ago. The king's fear continues in the way he warns Jeremiah to lie to the officials when they ask him what he and the king had been talking about. Tell them you were begging me not to send you back to the cistern. That way, they won't know I asked you to pray for me. It's like Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night so his Pharisee friends wouldn't find out. But as the next chapter tells us, Zedekiah's fear was misplaced because Jeremiah's warnings come to pass. Babylon's siege is successful and Nebuchadnezzar makes Zedekiah an example of what happens to those he sets up as puppets and who prove disloyal. In one of the more disturbing scenes in the Bible, Zedekiah is forced to watch as his sons, who were likely in their early teens at the oldest, since Zedekiah is only about 32 years old at this point. Zedekiah is forced to watch his sons be executed before his eyes, and then his own eyes are blinded so that their death would be the last thing he sees before it all goes black. There's a reason Jeremiah closes this book with a warning that Babylon will get what's coming to them as well. But at the same time as the barbaric cruelty of Babylon is on display, there are also some hints of the ways that God is using this horrific situation to do what we have talked about so much as we've gone through this book, to upend the social structure and lay the groundwork for a more just society to come out the other side. Starting in verse 8, we're told, The Chaldeans burned in fire the king's house and the people's housing, and Jerusalem's walls they demolished. The rest of the people remaining in the city, and the people who had gone over to him, and the rest of the people remaining, Nebuzaradan, 
the head of the guards took into exile to Babylon. Some of the people who were poor, who had nothing, Nebuzaradan, the head of the guards, left in the country of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields on that day. The poor are given the land that, had Israel actually lived the way that God had commanded them to live, they would have already had. But it takes the enemy, Babylon, to actually make it happen. The least are raised up and given land, the greatest are brought low and have their houses burned. One note here, these verses sometimes make it sound as if the entire population was emptied out and carted off to Babylon. In reality, as chapter 52 will tell us, it's only about 4,600 people who are actually exiled. Most likely, it's the important officials and elders and religious leaders, those with the power and connections to be able to build up resistance to Babylon. Those are the ones who are exiled, but many of the poor, as we see in these verses, are left behind. Exile is as much about the absence of the bedrocks of their culture and society, the temple, the king, the city of Jerusalem, their self-determination as a nation. It's as much about those things as it is about the literal absence of the land. This is actually one of N.T. Wright's key points in interpreting what the New Testament has to say about Jesus, just as a quick tangent, as I am often likely to do. N.T. Wright argues that to the people in Jesus's day, they would have considered the exile as to be still going on in many important senses, because things like the monarchy and their self-determination had not yet been restored. People in Jesus's day would have still been looking forward to the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jeremiah that were to come at the end of the exile. But in Jeremiah, chapter 39 closes with an affirmation of what Jeremiah has been saying all along. Those who trust in Yahweh have nothing to fear. We jump back in time to the story of Ebed-Melech, who had saved Jeremiah from the cistern, and Jeremiah says that he will be rescued. In this section, we see the turning upside down of the society, as so often happens in the pages of the Bible. The last are first, the first are last. Foreigners trust in Yahweh and do the work of Yahweh, while the Judean officials resist Yahweh. It's also a very human, very realistic portrait of the types of complicated decisions and pressures that so many of us face. Zedekiah feels he is between a rock and a hard place. He wants to follow God, but just can't see a way to actually do it. Doesn't Jeremiah understand how much pressure he's under? Doesn't he see that the nationalists will kill him if he listens to Jeremiah? But the fundamental point is hammered home once more. Even if it seems like wisdom to trust in something other than Yahweh, it will be shown to be foolishness in the end. And those who trust in Yahweh, like Jeremiah, like Ebed-Melech, will find themselves vindicated. The last will be first, and the first will be last. And that's where we're going to stop for this week. Thanks for joining me on The Backdrop. I hope you'll join me next week as we fly through chapters 40 to 45 of this book. We're in the home stretch. Yay! We'd also love to see you at Zoom Church this Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. You can find a link on our website. Until then, have a great week. Bye. Bye.